0: Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. My name is Nick Messmer, and I'm your co-host for this episode, along with Kevin Grosso. This is part four of our series on the verbal systems of the biblical languages, and today we're talking about how our understanding of the biblical Hebrew verbal system impacts our interpretation of specific biblical texts. So this is our first of two concluding episodes for this series, and our goal for these episodes is really to get practical and show how this discussion that we've been having of the verbal systems uh, really has an impact on how we read the biblical text. So in this episode, we'll look at some specific passages in biblical Hebrew. And in our next episode, we'll look at specific passages in biblical Greek. Before we dive into all that, I thought it might be helpful for me to share a little bit about uh, my background and my experience with this series as a listener. So I took both biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew uh, in my undergraduate program program. Uh, And then I went on to get an MA in biblical exegesis at Wheaton College, where there's a relatively heavy focus on the original languages. And yeah, as I think about my experience learning the languages, I definitely... Learned or heard terms like tense and aspect and modality. But yeah, I don't know that I really could say that one, that I could really define a lot of these concepts clearly, but especially I don't know that I could say that as I dug into specific biblical texts in the original languages, that I really saw or understood uh, the sort of impact that they could have on my interpretation of the text. So it's been really insightful for me to to listen to this podcast series and get some really linguistically informed conversation uh and context for th- these discussions of of the verbal systems of the biblical languages. So so that that's kind of where I'm coming from. I think uh maybe that that experience might resonate with a lot of our audience who maybe have experience learning the biblical languages, but maybe don't have experience with kind of linguistics proper and and what that might contribute to the conversation. So Kevin, your experience is a a bit different. So uh, maybe you want to share a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm kind of coming at it from the other way. So, I did my MA in Linguistics in, in Dallas at what is now Dallas International University. It was uh, the Graduate Institute of Applied Linguistics back then. Um, basically, it's Wycliffe School uh, for Training Bible Translators. So, yeah, I was there. I did, you know, Applied Linguistics, and, and really, I started getting into the biblical languages because I thought that the biblical languages are crucial for our understanding of of theology and exegesis, how we understand certain texts. It's crucial to have recourse to the biblical languages. And I realized as I was studying the biblical languages that I also had to have a theory of language, right? And how would I go about learning the biblical languages if I didn't know how language worked in general? And that sort of led me to linguistics. And you know, so right now I'm getting my PhD in Hebrew at Hebrew University, but really all of my classes have actually been in the linguistics department proper, or almost all. And what I have tried to do and and what I, yeah, will, will, you know, be a big part of my, my work going forward, hopefully, will be trying to connect these two fields. So, you know, I've, I've tried to dive deeply into the linguistics literature, and to see, okay, what kinds of categories are there that might be helpful for for understanding Hebrew and Greek, you know, and, and categories that might not have necessarily been applied yet to the biblical languages, because most people, you know, that are that are doing the biblical languages do linguistics as more of a of a side job, right? And and they, they don't really try to dive into the literature. So, so that's that's really where I'm where I'm coming from. And now my my goal is hopefully to kind of help to bring these two fields together as much as possible.
0: Yeah, a little bit more about where you're coming from, uh, not just coming with actual training in linguistics, but you've written on specifically the topic of the verbal systems of the biblical languages and your own research. So, yeah, do you want to share a little bit about your own work specifically on this topic that we've been discussing?
1: Yeah, so you know, I, I, like I said, I wrote my MA thesis on the biblical Hebrew verbal system, and I mean, you know, the the main two forms that that people analyze are yiktol and, and katal, and and that's a big part of my thesis. And basically, the bottom line is, you know, that I that I call yiktol irrealis, and as far as its aspectual interpretation. This kind of depends on your definition. So, in a, in an SBL presentation in twenty sixteen, I called it imperfective. Um, in my MA thesis, I I called it non-aspectual, but I defined both of those in the same way. And you know, we c- we can talk more about what that actually means. And then, yeah, I just actually presented on Catal a few months ago at, at SBL, and basically, I I think that the the meaning that the form encodes is a combination of the meanings of perfective and perfect so it it doesn't encode either one of those categories exclusive of the other
0: awesome yeah and we'll we'll link some of uh some of the papers and presentations that you just mentioned in our show notes so if people want to dive a little bit deeper uh yeah even with that explanation you just gave and it came up in some of the previous episodes um Again, just just before we dive into some specific passages, I thought it'd be helpful to maybe define some of the categories we're working with. And one of the the things that has come up as I interacted some with uh, your work, Kevin, that was really helpful for me. Uh, one of the distinctions was between notional categories and morphology. And you even kind of referenced it just there when you talked about uh, what's actually encoded uh, in, in a particular form. So what what is that distinction between notional categories and morphology?
1: Yeah, so when you think about, um, you know, like in our in my conversation with Noir, right? The way that we defined aspect and, and the way that linguists define aspect in general is just, it, it, it's a temporal relation between two intervals, you know? And so aspect is, Specifically, uh, relation between the event time and the reference time, um, and so there's really only so many ways logically we can relate um, event time to reference time, and and those those are notional categories, right? So we can say that you know the the reference time is is included within the event time, and and the event time you know extends beyond the reference time, right? So so that sort of um, understanding is. You know something that we can see. Okay, this is the kind of situation in the world that you know we would be talking about. You know a situation without endpoints, right? So we, we we can think about that. But that that's different than you know saying that a particular verb form in the morphology encodes that meaning, right? Um, so 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 to say that you know the the morphology gives us. That particular notional category is different, and and we shouldn't necessarily expect you know a certain verb form in a language to give us as you know a neat package. Oh, this is the notional category; it's event time included within reference time, right? Like like it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to do that. There it might be other um, ways that that the language. Um, expresses those notional categories and and uses the morphology to do that.
0: Yeah, and, and so that that's really what we're after when we ask these questions about the biblical Hebrew verbal system. The question we're asking is which notional categories are encoded in which morphological forms? Uh, and, and that's how we refer to them. When we say katal yiktol, we're, we're referring to morphological forms that we see present in biblical Hebrew. And the question is, which notional categories are encoded in that morphological form that we're referring to as katal, etc. That's what we're after.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, in fact, the reason why we say yictal and katal, right, is because there have been debates about what the, the notional categories are, right? And so people have said, oh, okay, well, let's just be fair. Let's just call the form by its morphology, Right. Let's not let's not label the form as a particular notional category, whether it be imperfective or modal or irrealis or whatever, or future. Like, let's just say it's Yiktol. We can all agree that's the morphology. And then we then we have to figure out, okay, what is the best analysis for this particular morphological form, um, you know, using the notional categories that we have?
0: Right, right. That's really helpful. And so that brings me to kind of a second set of categories or distinctions that have come up as I've engaged with this series and, and your work specifically between semantics or meaning and interpretation. So, again, we might say that particular notional categories are encoded in a particular morphological form. What does that mean when it comes to those two Additional categories of semantics and interpretation.
1: Yeah, so I mean, particularly the the notion of of semantics being the invariable meaning of a form. Um, this is something that is really crucial when you're doing semantics. So when you think about what what does a form mean, um, what we're what we're thinking of is what is the form's contribution to the context, right? And so uh, this is something that is a pretty important notion within biblical studies because I think a lot of times people get this confused. People will say things like, well, like a form only means something in a certain context. Well, that's kind of true, but but forms still make a contribution to the context, right? You you can't say that a form is determined absolutely by, by context, right? It, it's only so flexible. You know, how, no matter how hard you try, if I said, I ate dinner yesterday, I just can't mean I will eat dinner tomorrow. It just doesn't mean that. So, the issue is that you you do have a contribution of the form, right? But that's not the same as the interpretation of the form in a given context. So, you know, the, the interpretation we can say is, you know, how we might understand a verb in in a certain context, so that might be you know th- th- there's all kinds of ways that we can understand a certain form, um, but but the invariable meaning, right, the semantic meaning of the form is something that regardless of context is always going to be there. So when we say something like the ed morpheme in English, right, is past tense, what we mean is that the contribution of that form is past tense. You will not find it in in future contexts now now that we can debate about whether that analysis is, cr- is correct but that's what we mean when we say that that it is a past tense form
0: right and in, in your work uh, you also spend time distinguishing between the meaning of a form and the functions of the form and that's what you're getting at there is when you say the meaning you mean the invariable meaning uh, the, the meaning that that form contributes to the text no matter the context uh, whereas the function is really would you say the the meaning plus context how it interacts in the context creates all these different functions
1: yeah yeah exactly so so the idea is that you when you're analyzing a, a particular morpheme right any meaningful unit in language you you are never analyzing it in isolation right you're always encountering it in in within language, within within a particular context. And in that particular context, it's going to get a certain interpretation. So we can look at a form and we can see, here's this range of functions. If we look at all the different kinds of contexts that it can appear in, right? There are some contexts, you know, like we just said, that, that you know, it, it won't, like certain morphemes won't appear in. Um, I ate dinner tomorrow doesn't work, right? It just, it, it the, there's a clash between the adverb tomorrow and um, the meaning of, um, you know, the past tense morpheme in English. So, so the point is, we, we, we can look at all the different functions of a form and then what we're trying to do when we do semantics is take all those functions and say, okay, what's really common between all of these functions that we can say, you know, this is the contribution of the form um, in each of those contexts. So, there's there's got to be something similar about those contexts um, that allows this form to be used and, and you know, and and it prevents it from being used in in other contexts.
0: Yeah, so all, all that's really helpful. And I think understanding those distinctions will help us move forward as we look at particular passages. So, um, let's go ahead and, and do that now. These passages that we're going to be looking at, we will include them in the show notes. So, so if you want to kind of read along as we're talking about them, uh, that's where you can find those passages.
1: Yeah, so I think it would be helpful to look first at the yuqtul form. I, I think this is the most controversial form, and we can just kind of use these categories we set up to to analyze this form. So, so one of the helpful things to do is to contrast um, certain forms with, with other forms, right? So, within a given system, forms are going to do certain things and and so you know yektol has been called imperfective for example well the the participle has also been called imperfective or progressive right so the question is what 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 would be the distinction right aspectually between these two forms so if we define imperfective as only part of the event is in view right so so that means that the the reference time is included in the event time. What that means is, if we have a telic event, so a telic event where we have a definitive endpoint to it, so, for example, like, let's say, eat the sandwich, right? Um, you know, there's an end time to that, that verb phrase of eating the sandwich or that event, um, it's finishing the sandwich, right? So if, if we have a an imperfective interpretation of that, and and our definition of imperfective is is not including the endpoints. Then we would expect the endpoints to not be included when that form is used. Um, so you know we have an example here, Genesis forty eight twenty one. This is with the participle. el Yosef Hine met. Right. And so in English, and Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying. Anohi um, met. So this is a very good example. You know, die is is t-lick there is an endpoint and when israel or jacob says to joseph i am dying it specifically does not mean that he is dead right it, it means so so the endpoint here is not reached and this is very very typical if the participle is imperfective or progressive this would be a very typical interpretation right where the endpoint of a you know telic predicate is not yet reached so then we look at Yektol. Um, this is Exodus seven eighteen. We have the same verb, um, and and we can see how it's used. So it says, Asher Tamut Uva'ash Hayeor. So here we have the same the same predicate, right? Die, but it's very very clear that the endpoint will be reached. It's not that the endpoint is reached, right? Because it is in the future, but when this future event happens. The, the fish will actually die. And we know that because, the next sentence says, the Nile will stink because of it, right? So the point is that with Yiktol, when we have a telic predicate, the endpoint is reached. And with the participle, when we have a telic predicate, the endpoint is not reached, which suggests that the aspectual nature of Yiktol is not... However we want to define it or or the term we want to give to it, it's it's not saying that the reference time is included in the event time, right? That, that's what's important. So, that notional category cannot apply to Iqtul because we have clear examples to the contrary. And in fact, the normal interpretation with telic predicates in, in, with Iqtul is the endpoint is reached, right? And this would be the same as a, you know, a perfective interpretation. So, that's kind of the aspectual issue with this form.
0: Right. So the point is that the yiktol is typically uh, thought of or described as imperfective, but when it's used with a telic predicate uh, like die, uh, it actually has a perfective aspect because the endpoint or telos uh, is in view. Exactly.
1: So, you know, we might not want to call it perfective, the yictal form itself, right? Again, it doesn't really matter what we call it. What matters here is that what the yiktol form is doing aspectually is and, and this would be my analysis would just be that it's taking the telicity of the predicate, whatever that might be, and just feeding that into the interpretation. So it's it's really not saying anything about the aspect. This is fundamentally different from People who might call the yictol form imperfective and understand by that that, you know, it has this temporal relation, right, between reference time and event time. This shows that if you want to call yiktol imperfective, which, I mean, in that SBL paper, I say it's imperfective, but I give a different definition of imperfective, which, you know, might be a little bit confusing. But the point is that in our analysis, we have to say that yictol often has this interpretation that is equivalent to perfective forms, right? That's that's the issue. With telic predicates, w- what you're going to have with the Iktol is the endpoint being reached. And that is a serious problem if we define the invariable meaning of the Iktol form as the endpoint is not reached, right? Which is the normal definition of imperfective.
0: Right, and so that goes back to the distinction between uh, the meaning and the function. So we we have here a clear function of the yuktol, where uh, where it's functioning with a telic predicate, and that function should inform what we say the variable meaning is. And if we say the variable meaning is imperfective, that at least might be a little bit misleading or confusing or may not best account for this particular function.
1: Right. If if you say that the invariable meaning is, you know, reference time included in event time, this is wrong, right? It's it's it just can't be the case with with this kind of example.
0: Right, right. Yeah. That that's really helpful. Okay. So we've established this a spectral
1: nature of YicTol. And really what we've said is 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 that it's it can't be imperfective in the way that no- people normally define it. Um, what what it really does is just it takes it's you know a spectral interpretation from really the actio nsart or the lexical aspect of the predicate. Right. That's that's the idea that combined with the context. And then the other well the other thing that's normally discussed is is irrealis or modality. Um, so so we have a lot of examples of yuktol. Where you're talking about situations that are, are not real, right? I mean, Nora, you know, defined it as not the here and now, or you know, something that's possible or ne- or necessary. Um, so here's an example from from Exodus five eleven. So you go and collect for yourselves straw from wherever you know, and this is this is uh, the important part. Um, you can find it, or you might find it, right? So, they're being commanded, right? This is, you know, the Israelites being commanded to, to go and get straw where wherever they can possibly find it. So, they can possibly find it or whatever. That kind of situation did not happen in the world. Um, so, so, this is, you know, kind of a classic modal example Wherever you have the ability to find it, it's called circumstantial modality, or you know, there's other names for it. But but yeah, that this is the idea. So so the point here is is again, how can we provide a meaning to the actual form here that can account for this use? So again, if we say it's imperfective, it would be very hard to say that this function can be accounted for with the meaning of reference time included in event time, right? How, how would we do that? And and, and the same you know w- w- would go we have other examples of you know past yiktol so uh, if we want to say that you know the is future we run into the same kind of problem there right how how do we account for a past interpretation of yiktol if we say that the form is future right we we just can't do that so i think if you look what's important is each of these kinds of meanings do have something in common and the commonality is that there is some modal element in the context. So the typical analysis of future is is a modal analysis because, because the future is future time is fundamentally different from the past. It's not known. Again, things like your ability to find something, modal habituals are are also um, analyzed as modals. All of these sorts of functions do have something in common and the common element in them is this sort of modal analysis of each of the functions.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, we see that even in the previous example from Exodus, uh, because it's it's talking about the future, that that would be modal as well. So I do remember reading your paper as well. And you kind of use this term irrealis, which I s- assume means something like non-real or something like that. Um, and But you really distinguish it from the term modal and kind of explain why saying the yictol is a modal is maybe not the most helpful label as well. So why is Irealis a more helpful label than modal?
1: Yeah, so modal really is a semantic category that is applied to a lot of different things. So, you know, it, it, nouns can be modal, right? Um, imagination is a modal noun, or imaginary um, is a modal adjective, right? And and they have certain properties, right? And so, so, modality is kind of something that we use as linguists, particularly people talk about possible world semantics. It's a tool that we use to analyze meaning, right? Um, And there are some forms in some languages that so happen to express a type of modality, you know, a type of, let's say, possibility, right? So, for example, can in English is a modal form. Why? Because it expresses a certain type of modality, namely, you know, your ability to do something or, yeah, mostly your ability to do something. And there's all kinds of different interpretations, right, that can arise from different contexts, you know, that deal with ability. But Yiktol is different in that, although all of the functions can be analyzed using this category of modality, it doesn't tell you a particular kind of modality that's in the context or or that is necessitating this form, right, it just just says, interpret me, you know, using modality in some way, and I leave it up to the context to decide what that is. So that's different than something like can, where it says, I am this type of modality, I am a um, circumstantial or a dynamic modal, and I need to be interpreted in this way. So irreality is just a cover term to include all of those other kinds of meanings.
0: Right. And so that even kind of came through as you fumbled a little bit over how to translate the text into english you're like can find or, or might find it you know and so the point then is that again the to use some of these distinctions the invariable meaning of the yictol is irrealis which tells us that in any context the yictol contributes some sort of modal meaning uh to the text but the context determines what type of modal you interpreted it as, whether it be can or might or will or something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think we, we can account actually for some difficult verses with this definition, right, of yiktol. So, so one kind of notoriously difficult example is this az plus yiktol um, construction. And um, we find it, In Exodus 15, 1, for example, it says, So, you know, in English, this is normally, then Moses sang um, and the sons of Israel this song to Adonai, and they said, sang, right? That's a very literal translation. You have another example in 2 Kings 12, 17, so this is my translation now. This this was when Hazael, king of Aram, went up and he fought against Gath. So this is the kind of thing where it's a very odd use of Yikto because it seems to fly in the face of all of the analyses, right? This is what people have said. The, the issue is that, you know, we have a very, very clear aspectual interpretation. Then... Hazael, you know, King of Aram, went up, right, and he get he got there. He went up and he fought against Gath. I mean, he so he clearly reached some endpoint, right? So it's it's very like perfective in that sense. And then, and then, and then it's also how do how do we interpret this as, as modal in any way? So so the problem is that it looks as if it's just a normal event on a timeline, just like past perfective. This is a problem, right? And so so what people have said about this. People have said that this is an example of the preterite use of yiktol. the The, the idea is that yiktol was at one point um, equivalent morphologically to vayiktol, right? And so this is a case where we have this like resurfacing of the preterite yiktol, which is basically just va-yiktol. Um The issue is that it's actually interpreted very differently than vayiktol what uh, Rabinowitz, he wrote an article in 1984 about this particular construction, and what he noticed is that it's actually never interpreted sequentially. But, you know, if you've read narrative in Hebrew at all, you know that Vayiktol is the narrative form um, that's interpreted sequentially all the time. And so so the issue is, why why would Yiktol, if it was a preterite that was equivalent to Yiktol, why would it never be interpreted sequentially, you know, in these kinds of contexts? So, so this is actually what Rabinowitz says. He says, referring to the foregoing context of narrated past events, as plus imperfect, right, Yiktol, indicates this context as approximately the time when, the time or circumstances in the course of which, or the occasion upon which, the action designated by the imperfect verb form went forward. This was when, Oz, i.e. the time or occasion or circumstances mentioned or spoken of in the foregoing context, so-and-so did imperfect such-and-such. Okay, so Rabinowitz actually says that Oz plus Yiktol marks an editorial note. So he says, basically, if an editor comes along and says, I want to add this piece in, I can use Oz and refer back to everything else, and, and then I use Yiktol. So I think the reason why he he came up with this explanation is because he just thinks in terms of source criticism. And, you know, my, my dad would always say, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you treat everything like a nail. And and this is what he did, right? He said, oh, okay, this is what I know, like, this is how I'm going to treat it. But the fact that each of these contexts is very similar raises a red flag, right? It suggests that maybe there is something in these contexts that licenses the ictol form. And the fact that you would have to say that you know for example the redactor of exodus and second kings was the same person or they both agreed upon you know this certain redactional method of os plastic see, would seem very odd so this actually is expected under the irrealis interpretation if we just take us as a potentially subordinating particle, and that represents a circumstantial clause. So, across languages, we, we find this, where circumstantial clauses will have, um, you know, a subjunctive after them. Um, we have the same thing in Latin, for example, and the point is that um, this, this circumstantial clause is actually not part of the mainline story of events and so it relative to the story right it is it is um you know interpreted as sort of like background information or something about this eyes and its subordinating function relegates it to to something that is you know more in the minds of the the people in the discourse, right? So it's it's not that it didn't happen, but it's that it's that the way it interacts with the rest of the discourse, it's it's not on the main line of events, right? And so it doesn't refer to like what we talked about with Nora, like the here and now or like certain parts of the story.
0: Right, right. So actually that language of the here and now is really helpful here because like you said it it did happen, but in the here and now of the the author or the speaker It didn't happen in here now
1: right and so and so you know there there are certainly things to be worked out in this analysis right but but the the tools are are definitely there like we know oz could be a subordinating particle and so you know the idea is that it, it would just be functioning in that way sometimes and other times no but when it is with Yktol and it has a certain context, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty clear that the answer to the question, and this is just how you do semantics, right? If you, if you have this, these anomalous forms that all appear in the same context, then the way you go about analyzing that is you say, okay, there's something special about this context that licenses that form, right? And, and, and so you have to look carefully at that context and see how it's contributing and how that might interact with that form.
0: So, so again, you're seeing that same invariable meaning of Irealis con- being contributed by the Yictol, but the function of Irealis in, in this particular context looks a bit differently than, than we've seen in other contexts. But that, that invariable meaning of the Yictol being Irealis is still there. Um, and so all these examples we've looked at, it's there, and so that that's kind of... Uh, how we're making this case, or how you're making this case for the Ictol being irrealis?
1: Yeah, and I should say too that you know irrealis is a term. I mean, I, I, I just looking at it cross linguistically, I don't really think it is any different than than the subjunctive, for example. I, I mean, I think those are those are different names for the same phenomenon. So, so the point is that you know, again, it's very very normal for these forms cross linguistically to be in these kinds of subordinate contexts. That's just it's just how they're used. It's it's not it's not any subordinate context, right? Um, but then our analysis of these particular subordinate contexts, you know, has to jive with our, our semantics of the subjunctive or realis or whatever we want to call it.
0: Yeah, and, and just one more thing to say maybe before we we move on to the catal. Um, one thing you do in in one of your presentations that we'll link in the show notes is you kind of ask the question, okay, well, how do we choose between these different analyses? how do we choose between them how do we measure the strength of each analysis and the points you give are really helpful i think for people like myself who are coming from this who aren't experts in linguistics because they really are the way that you measure analyses in all sorts of fields Um, things like accounting for all the data right so that's what we just tried to do we gave some some data from the biblical text and we showed how your analysis accounts for that data but also simplicity right the the theory or the analysis that accounts for all the data in the in a more simplified way is going to be a stronger theory than one that does it in a more complicated way so you might um you might say that that explanation where uh it's an editorial note but the you know different editors using the same uh form for editorial that that gets kind of complex and it's it's not as simple of a theory and therefore it's not as strong and and again those those sorts of principles hold uh, not just in, in with linguistic theories, but other sorts of theories, and so so I found that to be really helpful. And then again, talking cross linguistically, um, that's that's another thing. If we see this sort of thing accounted for in other languages, that's not conclusive, but it it certainly uh, makes the theory that much stronger. So. Again, just for someone who, like myself, who's not an expert in linguistics, you can start to weigh these different theories against one another uh, with with some of those principles.
1: Yeah, and and let me just say too, you know, I have learned a lot from people that I disagree with, and 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 this is something that I think is is important within, um, especially especially the I mean, within biblical studies in general, but but especially within the grammatical world. I I feel like a lot of people. Um, there is a lot of like personal skin in the game a lot of times um but but i would just say that i i i really think it's important for us to progress as a field um you know to to challenge each other in a way that is you know civil and and that we can really learn from each other's you know perspectives and analyses um and and, and i think that's important to say explicitly because because it it, it can at times seem like we're all on different teams, when we're actually not, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to come up with, um, you know, an analysis that that fits the data so that we can understand God's word better. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I, I think it's important
0: to always to always keep that in mind. So uh, yeah, I think that is maybe a great place to wrap up the Yiktol and and move on to the Katal.
1: Yeah, so again, I think the important, you know, parameter here is aspect, right? So, um, the two big, you know, well, really, there's three categories that the katal form can be called. It's perfective, perfect, or past, right? So, those are those are our, our options. Um, and so, we have very clear, perfective interpretations. Um, you know, this is an example from Micah 6.4. Ki <speaking> me'eretz mitzrayim. This is like, you know, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Um very clearly God brought them all the way up from the land of Egypt. They actually got brought up and they reached the endpoint. Right? That's the, that's the important part here. You know, this is a telic predicate. They they actually left Egypt and and went to somewhere else. So so that's an example of perfective. And then we have examples of perfect. This is from Genesis twenty-six-twenty-seven. 27. alaihem Yitzhak, madua batemelai. You know, so I'll read it in English. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? we have this interpretation of of perfect right why have you come to me right you have come right so so the the perfect interpretation here is is a result perfect so it means that you know there was some past action with a present result in this case the result is their presence so someone actually came to someone else um, and then we have these other examples like a state of use um, this is some genesis 49 so again, we have, you know, a particular aspectual interpretation, right? God says to to Cain or Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know, right? And so this is a very clear example of, you know, he, it doesn't mean I didn't know, right? He's asking, where where is Abel, your brother? I don't know, right? present stative. You know, am I my brother's keeper? So, so if we just look at these examples, right? We we have three different interpretations, three different functions, right? one form. And so so our 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 task now is to figure out, okay, what is the common element in these interpretations? How do we account for one single form doing these three different things? So, you know, people have said, oh, "Okay, well, the katal is perfective." Well, the question is is how do you account for you know, the perfect uses with a definition of the Catal form that just says the uh, event time is included in the reference time? Because with a perfect use, the event time precedes the reference time. So, so the issue is that our, our definition and the data don't match up, right? And again, the state of uses is the same problem. So with the state of, it's, it's actually a bigger problem for a perfective form because states don't have endpoints. Right, so here we have the opposite problem that we had with the Iktol. So states don't have endpoints, but the perfective says, I end, right? Perfective says the end of a situation has, has happened because the entire event time is included within the reference time. So the event has to end. And so how, how then can we account for a state of interpretation with, you know, like loyadati, I don't know, which is very clearly, you know, doesn't have an endpoint with this definition of perfective and with this definition of perfect. Right? We can't just say, you know, the the event time precedes the reference time and say, oh, well, this accounts for, you know, the perfective examples somehow and this accounts for the same examples somehow. We have to come up with some sort of story on on why we have these three different interpretations.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I think in in my head for a stative uh it's been easy to maybe just like lean on the perfect of like i have not known and the present implication of that is i still don't but yeah kind of like you said it's like i feel like i'm i'm just yeah using that as a crutch and it it doesn't really like make sense of of the to me so i would be interested in knowing how to do that
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so so let me talk first about the the tense Right. So, so, again, some people have said that katal is past tense. So, you know, uh, again, th- the main problem with this is just these kinds of examples, like in Genesis 4 9, loyadati, where very clearly it doesn't mean I didn't know. I mean, he's asking a question and it's, it's totally irrelevant what happened in the past. <laughs> What's relevant is whether he knows now. The issue is that, and, and really any kind of present. Perfect is also an issue for the for the past tense analysis, right? So, you know, why have you come to me is present, it's present tense. It's a past event relative to the present, right? Um, but the tense itself, the relationship again, between the time of utterance and the reference time is in the present. So again, it's an issue for for that analysis. So so what I would say is the semantics of the catal form, right, really is a combination of the two notional categories of perfective and perfect. So so the idea is that how how can we fit these two things together logically? Um, and there is a way to do this. So, you know, I, I have this in my paper and, and the analysis is actually from a paper by Ashwini Deo and Cleo Kondoravdi about, you know, a different form and a different language that, is pretty much identical to the catal form and just the idea is that you know the event time is included in the reference time or it precedes it or really it takes up the whole reference time in the case of in the case of a state Um, so so this this kind of um meaning it's a case where the morphology of the catal form doesn't match up perfectly with our notional categories. So, so the point is that it's it's misleading to call the catal form perfect. It's misleading to call to call the catal form perfective or stative or whatever because it excludes those other categories. If we just use our normal notional categories to to describe the form. But what's important is that you know, we provide a semantics to this specific form, not ex- necessarily expecting it to, to meet our notional categories so neatly, and we, or apply our analysis you know, to, to this specific form and figure out, okay, logically, how can we combine these, these notional categories into a single meaning that the catal form contributes to the context.
0: Right, and, and that's just a really important note, is that the notional categories that we have are just that. They're categories that have been created to make sense of things, but they're not going to correspond one-to-one to, to a, a given language necessarily. I guess they might, and that would be helpful. But you could just as easily come up with your own notional category that maps one-to-one onto the katal but it's not that helpful because no one else uses that notional category
1: well well and this is part of the point is that even our notional categories uh, most of the time we're just developed from english right so so the the point of like the you know the notional category that we think of as perfect for example is strangely familiar to English speakers who have that form in their language. And and it's fine, right? Like, we have to do this. We have to think in a language, right? But really, these, these categories are, I mean, they are logical categories, right? There are only so many ways we can think of a relationship between two intervals, but they, they are going to differ across languages, and there are going to be some forms, you know, that are that are the same. The, um, like I said, the the Catal form is very similar to to other forms cross linguistically. The German perfect is, is very similar. The French passé composé is very similar. Um, so, so these things suggest that we're on the right track with this form.
0: Right, right. So yeah, that's helpful. So the notional categories. Uh, that are encoded in the morphology of the katal are what we might call the perfective, which designates that the event time is included within the reference time, or the perfect, which designates that the event time precedes the reference time, or a state, of you said, um, kind of is a combination of those two. Well, it's really
1: that the state holds within the reference time and says nothing else other than that.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So that's really helpful. So again, just, just to kind of sum up what we've done with the Ictol and the Katal, is we have uh, looked at data and we've tried to account for that data by offering a semantic theory for the Ictol and for the Katal that accounts for that data in the sense that uh, those morphological forms contribute a, a particular, uh, meaning to each of those uh, data points that we looked at. So yeah, so now let, let's just keep going with that. Let's look at some specific texts and maybe show kind of how uh, these understandings of the verbal systems uh, can, can be used practically as someone is reading through a text.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the reason why I picked these two examples is because I didn't pick... These two examples. Um, so, so they they were questions that were asked to me. Um, one was several years ago. One was a couple of weeks ago. Um, hey, what do you do with this particular example? And I just get questions like this sometimes. Um, so, so you know, the, the the examples before we looked at are, I think, are helpful for understanding. Okay, how is the system working? And but but I handpicked them, right? Um, so in th- this case, like someone else picked them, and and it was you know a kind of a challenge, you know. How, how do you account for this? Um, so this is the kind of thing where I think um, it's helpful to to really like dig in and see, okay, how, how do we account for this? And and two, how, how do the, the translations account for it? Um, so So here, here's an example. Proverbs 2432 la'khti <laughs> musar. So the ESV says, then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. The net says something similar. When I saw this, I gave careful consideration to it. I received instruction from what I saw. NIV, I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. So the the main point here, right, is all three translations take this clause, Ashit Libi, which is, you know, I set my heart, um... It's like a again very little translation, um, but it's in Yekto. So this is this is a, like very strange, you know. Again, for the ESV to 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 say that I saw and considered it, right? I, I just considered it, past perfective, done, right? Again, NET same thing. I gave careful consideration to it. Um, I applied my heart, right? Again, in all of the translations agree actually that. Here we have an example where yiktol means something that it isn't supposed to mean. And, and and this would again be a problem for for anyone's analysis of yiktol. It seems, you know, very perfective-like. I mean, according to these translators, it, it, it seems like it just happened. So so there are several things involved here. Um one is you, you have a contrast between two verbs of seeing. Um, one verb of seeing, chaza, or in this case, you know, it's va and then ra'iti. So, so what's important about these verbs, first of all, is that, that chaza means something more like look, okay? And look is not the same as see. And ra'iti is the normal word for see. And the, the contrast there, and, and actually, you know, the, the translations I should normally translate the, the first verb as saw and the second verb as look. Um I which I, I wouldn't do but 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 the contrast between look and see is that you can look at something without seeing it. You can look at something and it doesn't have to register in your brain, right? And I think this is actually crucial for understanding what's going on here. So he says I looked and then we have our phrase ashitlibi I saw, I took instruction, right? So if he looked, then he probably had a, a reason for looking. And and we all know that in Proverbs um, and in poetry in general, we're, we're missing all kinds of conjunctions and it's very terse, yada, yada, yada. Um, so it's very, very normal for Yiktol to appear in purpose clauses with Le Ma'an, for example. This is basically the same as Hina in Greek with the subjunctive, they just work the same way. So so if we say I looked, you know, with an implied so that I might set my heart, right? And and in particular in this context, it's talking about the person looking at a sloth, someone who's lazy. And the idea is that he looked and then he thought about it, right? He looked in order that he might really consider it and then he saw, then he then he he recognized, right? Then when he sees after the looking, after the considering, he sees, ah, this is not good. And then he accepts the instruction. What's important in this passage is, this is not about the verb form. I mean, it is and it isn't, right? What's important is, you have to know the semantics of chaza and how it differs from gaa You have to know the kinds of ways that yiktol is used in other kinds of like purpose clauses, in non-poetry texts where it's very clear and... It's all spelled out for you, all these relationships. And and of course you have to know this idiom, right? Ashit libi. That's not normally how we would say it in English. You know, I put my heart. But but all of these things are crucial in how we understand this text. What's important is that the iktol form is used in purpose clauses. And in order to tell that this is a purpose clause, you need to know the semantics of the surrounding verbs to figure out what are the relationships between these verbs and the iktol form.
0: I also think just that that whole concept of invariable meaning is helpful because if you take that to heart then you're not going to be content to just translate it kind of like these translations do as though it's like a past perfective and because it it makes the most sense contextually like you're you're not going to be Okay, with the context kind of overriding your your understanding of the semantics of the form, and so you're going to then ask, okay, well, how can I account for that the semantics, okay, the invariable meaning, while doing justice to the context, and, and that's the sort of thing that would lead you to that purpose clause, that does account for what we've said the invariable meaning of the actol is irrealis, right? But it also does justice to the context, and and, and again, I think contribute like. Overall, that, that's a significantly different interpretation than just translating it like uh, past perfective. It doesn't change my theological framework, but it, it, it gives me a, a substantially different interpretation of the, of the verse.
1: Sure, yeah, and and of course, you know, I pick an example that isn't theologically loaded. You know, no one is losing sleep over how we interpret the toll here, right? But, but, but what is important in these kinds of examples is exercising our linguistic muscles and saying, like, how do we account for this? We should come up with a theory that accounts for these interpretations so that when we do come to exegetically and theologically significant passages, we can say, oh, okay, like, I've seen this before. This isn't strange to me. I know that the yuqtul form works in this way, and that when we can account for that data as well with this kind of explanation.
0: Yeah, I think that's just such an important point that while, again, I do think that that actually provided a, a helpful, uh, substantially different understanding of the passage that we just looked at, but you know that aside... Precision and accuracy in interpreting the Bible is not just important when it comes to what we might consider an exegetically or theologically significant or loaded passage, but every time we sit down and read and interpret the Bible, we're developing a habit of interpretation where we're developing our interpretive skill. So every time we sit down and interpret it, whether the passage is considered exegetically or theologically significant or not, we ought to be sharpening that skill and cultivating positive habits every single time. So that, like you said, when we do come to those more significant passages, we have those skills refined, we have those habits cultivated, and yeah, we can interpret with more precision, more accuracy, and more confidence with those maybe weightier passages So yeah, I I just think that's so helpful. And, you know, even just the deeper point there of whether we consider the passage theologically significant or not. Yeah, I just think it's important when we're dealing with what we consider to be God's word to do it with as much precision and accuracy as we can just out of respect for the text we want to know what it says whether what it says in any particular instance is going to be fundamental or yeah really significant to our overall theological framework we want to respect the text we want to do justice to the text uh, no matter what so what's the second passage then that you chose
1: yeah so another one this is just yeah when i got asked on several years ago psalm 93 1 and the important point here it's a very similar example in the sense that the yuktal form is important, right? But you need to know more than just the yuktol form and what's going on. So in particular, I'll just focus on this phrase, Aftikon Tevel. So this is at the end of Psalm 93, 1. Aftikon tevel timot." In the, the the translations, you know, various translations are pretty much all translated the same way. The KJV says the world is established, that it cannot be moved. ESV, yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. NIV Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. So, Aftikon, this is a, a Yiktol form, and all of the translations want to take it as the world is established. So the question really is what, is, what does this verb mean, right? If you say that the verb means establish, right? Like it's something equivalent to establish in English, then it would be very odd to say something like, the world will be established because it is already right it you know at the time that this is being written the world is very clearly something that's there <laughs> um and, and so this is i think the issue with with all the all these you know translations are struggling with this right yes the world is established it shall never be moved so they don't have a problem with this next clause bald like it will not be shaken whatever um that's future Right, we can say that that event will not happen in the future. It won't be shaken. Um, but the problem is, is this this establishing verb, right, um, w- would be very odd to say it's in the future, even though yuk-tol, um is normally interpreted as future or or some sort of modal right element, right. But uh, how can we say it's possible that the world will be established, right? Like that's that's the issue. So this though is really only a problem if we translate this verb as establish in english which is at least at least on a very normal interpretation a verb of creation and and verbs of creation often imply non-existence before the event so this is the issue right and this is why all these translations just say oh it's it's established even though you would never take the actual form in ordinary passage to be you know a, a you know what this is an adjectival passive present state you know that's just there. So so the solution is we, we know that the world is already established, so it can't be future. However, we we don't know if the world God created will stand firm in the future. Right? And so and if you look up in the dictionary, this word stand firm is also a gloss. <laughs> so it's not even that we this this meaning is something I'm making up. It's just that these translators happen to pick established as the word that we need to translate it in this passage. If you just said, "Yes, the world will stand firm; it will not be shaken," it makes a lot of sense, right? The world will, you know, continue to be there, right? It will stand firm; nothing will move it. Um, and then it says, "It will not be shaken." So, so, so the issue is that how we translated or understood the verb with the aktor form affected our options for how we then, you know, interpreted the tense or aspect or modality of that verb form, right? So so this is an example of how it's super important to be really careful not only of, you know, what, what our semantics is of the verb forms, but also the semantics of the lexical item where in which the verb form is found.
0: Right, and... and- Again, just like the previous example, it kind of goes both ways. Like you just said, if you know that this particular verb can be translated as something more like stand firm rather than establish, that helps you uh, with how you interpret the Yiktol in this case. But, But it works the other way around that if you have a strong analysis, a strong theory of the Yiktol, it can at least be a red flag. For how you then choose to translate it, right? Okay, I, st- I mean exactly what you just said. If you have this strong theory of the etol, you're going to say, okay, that doesn't quite make sense with establish. So, are there are there some other options for what it it could mean lexically? And then that takes you to the dictionary, and you see the other the other. Uh, potential translations in there. Oh, perfect. You know, stand firm. That fits with my understanding of the Yiktol. Boom, we're good to go. So yeah, it's great to see how all these things work together, but but also specifically how having a specific analysis of uh, these morphological forms can actually uh, lead you in the right direction in terms of interpretation
1: yeah yeah and like you said it does go both ways and what that means is that if you are going to do and this is one of the things that i think is really lacking right now in the study of the verbal system i mean really in hebrew and greek you have to do other things besides verbs there's a reason why for example a huge thing is how verbs interact with nouns in a verb phrase you you have to be very very careful about how all of these things are combining and interacting with each other and it's it's very complex and and it, it might sound daunting. You know, okay, so you're telling me now I don't have to be an expert in only verbs, but I have to be an expert in lexical semantics and you know all kinds of other things too. Um I mean I I mean honestly, yes, in in some ways like you we, we do need to be, but the, the point is that when we approach a text, we have to recognize this complexity, right? So so the take-home message is not that, oh, you know, I can never know enough to really analyze the system well, but the take-home message is be cautious, right? And and, and even even these kinds of analyses, uh, I mean, I think Steve said this um, in, in our interview, it's a case of probability. And I think it's probably right, but at the end of the day, I'm interpreting a language that I don't speak natively. No no one does. And so we, we just have to be careful, given the complexity of, of how we understand these things and do our analyses well and really recognize all the sorts of pieces that go into the puzzle.
0: Yeah, and I think it goes back to the point you made earlier that this is a team effort and, and we need to work as a team and the, the way you do that is by both contributing and also uh, leaning on the contributions of others. And so if you're listening to this and this was a riveting experience for you, if this was exciting and engaging, then maybe you are the person that needs to develop that expertise in linguistics and verbs and beyond verbs and and all those things that Kevin is saying need to be done in the field. If this was more daunting for you, that's okay too. That doesn't mean you can't be an exegete. That doesn't mean you can't be in the field of biblical studies, but it does mean you, and I'm speaking to myself here, it means that we Need to at least rely on the contributions of those who are specializing in these fields, and to do that, we at least need to have a foundation, and and hopefully we're starting to develop that sort of foundation from this series. Uh, but then, then the next step is is absolutely listening to those voices that are that are putting in the work in this particular field. So, so yeah, I think those are some big takeaways uh, from this: is we need people doing the work, and we need people integrating that work with with other work as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure, and. I would just want to encourage whoever out there, like sometimes when you read the literature, it seems like solving these sorts of grammatical problems are impossible, and that's just not the case. Like we can come to better analyses, even if we can't know completely what exactly, you know, the author intended here. We can come to better analyses. We can advance in our understanding of these languages. And I think linguistics really is a... A tremendously helpful tool to to doing that.
0: Well, I think that is a, a good place to stop this conversation. And like we said, our next episode, we'll be doing kind of the same thing, digging into some specific passages, but talking about the biblical Greek verbal system. So that's all we have time for on this episode of the biblical languages podcast. Thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the biblical languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed the episode.